Why are police photographing our license plate? What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. We have two powerful reasonable voices as guests today, Dr. Pamela Hamilton-Stubbs, BSN and MD, and a returning reasonable voice, Eileen Davis, a professional registered nurse, adjunct professor, community advocate, and care provider in a clinic for the uninsured in Central Virginia. Eileen Davis remains dedicated to ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. And thanks to her efforts among many, on January 15, 2020, history was made when Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. Registered nurse Eileen Davis is now an active member on the Health Committee on the Virginia State Conference of the NAACP. And our new guest on The Reasonable Voice is today, Dr. Pamela Hamilton Stubbs. Dr. Pamela Hamilton Stubbs is a medical missionary a neurologist with double board certification in sleep orders medicine and co-founder of Dr. Hamilton Stubbs Sleep and Total Wellness Institute, LLC, located in North Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Hamilton Stubbs is the author of over nine peer-reviewed medical textbook chapters and peer-reviewed medical journal articles. She earned degrees in nursing and psychology, graduating with honors from Kent State University in Kent, Ohio. She completed a pediatric residency at the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta and a neurology residency and child neurology fellowship at the Medical College of Virginia, Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Hamilton Stubbs completed self-directed training in sleep disorders medicine by working with some of the most esteemed experts in sleep medicine at leading institutions in the United States of America, including, but not limited to, the Johns Hopkins University Hospital Pediatric Sleep Center. Dr. Stubbs is the first African-American sleep specialist in the Commonwealth of Virginia. She is a past chair of the Neurology, Neurosurgery section of the National Medical Association and currently serves as the Health Committee Chair for the Virginia Association of Ministers' Wives and Ministers' Widows and the Health Committee Chair of the Virginia State Conference of the NAACP. Dr. Stubbs is the health editor for The Herald, the official publication of the International Association of Ministers' Wives and Ministers' Widows. And I've asked her and registered nurse Eileen Davis to be our reasonable voices today to share information about the coronavirus pandemic and COVID-19, and most specifically, SARS-CoV-2. First, welcome ladies to the Reasonable Voices radio news program. How are you today, Eileen? I'm good. The reason that Pamela and I are both come together professionally is because we both serve on the state health committee for the NAACP and studying COVID-19 and its disparate effects among communities of color is uh, something that the state health committee is focusing all its attention on right now. You know, the work that Pamela and I are doing together. Excellent. Thank you for that. And you, Dr. Hamilton Stubbs, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good. Pleasure to be here. 
My pleasure to have you, truly. I'm particularly happy to have you on the show. I've read so much about you lately. Let's start with you. As both a religious person, as a medical professional, uh, very much involved politically with the NAACP, your focus, is, it seems to me, is both on church and state, physical and spiritual health for everybody. What I love about it is that it's all-inclusive. What are your concerns about how large gatherings, whether in marches for justice or places of worship, how are you concerned about all of that leading to that close contact, leading to an increase of more COVID-19 cases? Well, Marcelo, I don't believe that many of us have been properly educated on what a virus is, what the coronavirus is, and how it spreads. For example, a virus is somewhere in between a living organism and an organism that's not alive. And the reason it's classified in this gray zone is because the virus doesn't have all the intracellular workings to live independently. It mm. needs a host. And the SARS-CoV-2 has found an excellent host in many humans, whereas previously it was limited to animals. It has what they call jumped into uh, humans. Mm -hmm. And we are not aware fully because it hasn't, we haven't been given the information, but also because researchers and scientists are still discovering Right now, it's thought that it's spread mostly by aerosolization. And my concern is that places of worship have been identified as high-risk areas because when we come together, we're usually sitting closely. When we talk, we may talk at different levels, and we know now that louder talking and singing tends to spread the virus so that you... you shed more virus into the air and the virus can travel farther distances mm -hmm. and also the duration most of us are in this location for at least an hour so this gives us three high risk for catching the virus closeness the amount of virus within that atmosphere and then the duration of exposure and this happens when we come together in our places of worship you know, I wonder, and I'm glad you started out with explaining the virus itself. I generally say the coronavirus COVID-19 because initially I was told by a guest that COVID-19 is a kind of coronavirus. Can you clear that up? Was Is that correct? The second part of that question is people are talking about borders, state borders, as though somehow they can block a virus. But let's get to that in the second half. The first half is, what should we be calling it? Because we, we interchange these terms, coronavirus and COVID-19. Is it one or the other? Is it both? What is it? Well, the coronavirus or COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, are all names given for a virus that's been identified as causing this current pandemic. The virus official name is SARS-CoV-2, and this virus is part of a family of viruses called the coronavirus family. Another virus that caused epidemics in the early 2000s that was also from this family is the SARS virus. The SARS virus caused severe acute respiratory syndrome. This virus is also causing an acute respiratory syndrome, and it is called SARS-CoV-2, and it's because the World Health Organization added COVID-19 to the name about the last quarter of December. So there are many viruses in the coronavirus family. The virus that is causing the current pandemic is SARS-CoV-2, also called COVID-19. Thank you so much. I, I, I know that may seem nitpicking, but I just feel we ought to know what we're talking about. And that is the clearest answer I've gotten to that question. Thank you very much, Dr. Stubbs. I wonder if that second part of my question you could address now, which is when people talk about 
well, that's a big city thing, or or it's over here and it's just with older people, or you know, or it's in Texas, it's not in Oklahoma. Viruses stopping at state borders, I, it's I don't know how people can think about that. But you're the professional. Tell us. Well, the virus it needs to have a host. When that host is traveling, crossing into other areas, that person is carrying the virus with them. So if a person is in a highly populated area where you have close proximity and many people who could have asymptomatic carrier states, people are more likely to become infected. If they're not tested when they leave this high-risk environment, they can carry the virus if they are asymptomatic carrier into other areas. So there is some benefit to people staying at home if they are infected or self-quarantining themselves for at least 14 days, which is the recommendation from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, if the person has been exposed to someone who's infected. So the virus itself needs a carrier, Mm. and that carrier happens to be humans in this particular case. You know, doctors, I wonder, what can you tell us about the effect SARS-2 is having on some children, not all children, it seems, but some children? What is that? Well, SARS-CoV-2 was initially thought to not affect younger people, or if they did become infected, that they would only have mild disease. But what they have found is that the virus not only affects the respiratory system, but it also can affect the vascular system and it can kick the immune system into overdrive. Young children are becoming infected, even infants, and these children are at great risk of dying from the disease because it is affecting their immune system, and their respiratory system. Hmm. So they developed something that is similar to another type of illness called a Kawasaki disorder, which is a illness that was thought to be induced by something in the environment. And it also affects young children. So people who think, well, I don't have to worry about the coronavirus because I'm younger, They may get a mild illness, but if they have young children at home, those children could be in extreme danger. Well, Eileen, like uh, uh, Dr. Stubbs, you too wear many hats as a a nurse, you know, and of course your political advocacy. but, But you certainly have always been not only for the equality of women, but also the equality of all races and all socioeconomic levels. I'm just wondering, as you work, for instance, in the uh, the clinic for the uninsured in Central Virginia, are you seeing any differences between the cases and the treatment and what is happening in a clinic like that as opposed to when we see on television, you know, what's going on in the bigger hospitals? Is there a difference? And if so, what is it? And if there, if there isn't, explain that to us and how you're making that work. Well, the, the thing is, is that you've always had, a, you've always needed a place for people to go who don't have a medical home. And one of the things that we're we're working on in the NAACP Faith Health Committee is the disparate effects of people of color, both black people and brown people, tend to have more incidents of bad outcomes. I mean, they're getting sicker, they're dying in greater numbers. And, you know, we are, have to look at this in its entirety. We're, again, we're still trying to collect data as to what this is but to my mind one of the single biggest reasons is delay when you don't have a streamlined way to go get you know you're not feeling well you know you lose a couple of days because you don't know where to go you don't have a medical relationship you wait until you're really really sick and you drag yourself in and then you're once you even start getting any intervention you're already way down that sickness path that is going to have a direct impact on outcome 
The other thing is whether or not if you don't have good medical background in terms of access to care, you know, and if you have untreated diabetes, untreated hypertension, if your body is in any way stressed, you know, you're not going to be as likely to fight this off as a person who's in otherwise excellent health, which is why we, you know, we're hearing about these asymptomatic carriers who have the same virus as someone else who may be on a ventilator for three weeks. And that's the difference between older people and younger people. But, you know, we talk about how 40% of the people who get COVID-19 are, and who die of COVID-19 are over the age of 60. Well, let's think about the fact that the other 60% are adults, young adults who otherwise healthy young adults. You know, you have 45-year-olds dying of COVID-19. We you know the, the 40% is the 40%, but the majority is still otherwise mid-age, mid-range people who really are ending up on ventilators and having poor outcomes. And the, and the, and the other thing that I wanted to also say is we're talking about the death count, but let's talk about the people who have coronavirus get super, super sick and still recover. Yes. I mean, I have a I have a friend who's a nurse, and her husband, who was in his 40s, had COVID. He was at a VCU for about three weeks. He was intubated. He was otherwise healthy. When he's still recovering, like three months later, he went home with a feeding tube. He couldn't talk. He couldn't swallow. He is, you know, his his life expectancy has been altered. People are um, coming home with permanent lung damage. People who are used to be healthy are now can't walk half a either the mailbox without using an inhaler, they have permanent lung disease. So we just can't really focus on the death count. We have to also focus on the people who, if they get sick from this, they may have life-altering damage to their bodies as a whole. And we are still having, we're still looking at what this may be the, the result in terms of subsequent problems, you know, early onset of chronic, you know, obstructive pulmonary disease. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we don't yet know. So the person who thinks, well, I'm only 45 and I don't have to worry about this because I'm in really good health. Well, you get COVID and you may not be in good health for the rest of your life. And in fact, your life might be shortened. Well, so these thank- are things we, we need to really start bringing out there. And it's not a fear narrative. It's just a straight talk narrative. Yes. And then the last thing I wanted to say is we were talking about why different communities have higher outcomes. It's also a matter of a socioeconomic. We were talking to one woman who, who lives in a rural area of the state of Virginia, and she was saying, you know, people go and they get tested for COVID and they say, oh, well, you have COVID. Yeah, but you're not that sick. So just go home and isolate yourself, you know, and only come back if you really feel like you're getting sicker. Well, if you live in a ba- if you live in a home with one bathroom, how the heck are you going to isolate yourself? The reality is, is every person in that house is, is going to be exposed to you. It's it's unavoidable. Because I have a friend who hid in her bedroom for nine days. You know, and her husband slept in the guest room, and the kids went. That's a privilege. Yes. You know, but you can't expect people who are sharing small living spaces in one bathroom to successfully isolate. What you're basically going to do is everybody in that house is going to be exposed. It's almost unavoidable. All right. Thank you, Eileen. We're going to have to take a break. We are talking with Dr. Pamela Hamilton Stubbs, BSNMD Health Committee Chair, Virginia State Conference of the NAACP, and a member of that same committee, Nurse Eileen Davis, a repeat guest. We're going to be right back. Stay with us because the more I listen to these two ladies, the more I realize we really don't know what's going on yet. We don't know what's coming next, but both Dr. Hamilton Stubbs and Nurse Eileen Davis are going to tell us more in the next segment. Please stay with us. We'll be right back. And now a special preview of Wildest Dreams, a new single by Mark Scabilia. Pacing through the dark in this cold apartment, I step out on the fire escape. I look at where we are and where we started. And where we'd like to be someday If this is as far as we get If this is as high as we go I will rest in peace But I won't fall asleep Cause it's better than my wildest dreams And it's nothing like the world that we once imagined 
But doesn't it look beautiful And nothing lasts forever So whatever happened I just wanted you to know that This is as far as we get if This is as high as we go I will rest in peace But I won't fall asleep Cause it's better than my wildest dreams Oh and I still don't know What lies ahead of you and me But tonight I won't close my eyes Because it's better than my wildest dreams My wildest my wildest dreams Yes, is better than my wildest dreams My wildest dreams My wildest dreams Light fills up the room And the streets start singing A new song to another day Sleep an hour or two, but our phones are ringing And I feel the rumble of the train If this is as far as we get If this is as high as we go I will rest in peace But I won't fall asleep Cause it's better than my wildest dreams Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices News Talk Radio Program. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, and my two guests today, Dr. Pamela Hamilton Stubbs, BSN and MD, Health Committee Chair of the Virginia State Conference of the NAACP, and a member of that committee and uh, conference of the NAACP, Eileen Davis, a nurse who is a returning guest and good friend of the Reasonable Voices. So we were we covered quite a bit in the first segment, but I, I think we want to get back to Dr. Stubbs's original uh, point that she was making about large gatherings, whether they are meatpacking plants or malls with people shopping or understandable protests by the thousands, which I certainly support, but I worry about such things. And in a place where we usually know we can go for spiritual rejuvenation, places of worship, they too are still crowded situations, and I believe that's where COVID-19 does its worst. So what, what are your thoughts, Dr. Stubbs? Really tell us what you think we need to know most about being in large gatherings, particularly houses of worship. Okay, so of the three things, retail places, protests, and then places of worship, the one that's most like a place of worship are the protests that are going on. So what they have in common is closeness of people, people speaking in loud voices, which tend to spread the virus more and spread the virus farther, and then the duration. There have been some studies that exposure to just 10 minutes of exposure can cause a person to be exposed long enough to become infected. So if you're at a place for an hour, which is the probably the minimum length of time for most places of worship services, you're at a place where you are sitting for a long time, and if the windows are closed, ventilation is not good, and there's someone in there that's infected who is not wearing a mask, might be coughing, speaking, or singing, the room can be infected with a large number of the viruses. And the way a person gets infected is by breathing in the virus. You have to have a certain amount of viral load. So those are the things that put a person at risk. And that's why I focus mostly on a question that was asked of me, is it safe for me to return to church? And in order to answer that question, I think you have to look at two things. You have to look at the individual, and then you have to look at the environment. Some people have more risk 
and going back to church. If you're over 65, if you have moderate or severe asthma, chronic kidney disease, chronic lung disease, diabetes, if you have a blood disorder, if you're immune compromised, if you have liver disease, if you have heart disease, or if you have a body mass index greater than 40, you are at risk. Obesity is a particular concern to me because I specialize in sleep disorders, and one of them, obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, is associated with a high incidence in people who are obese. And I have to walk around that very carefully because people do not want to be labeled obese. Mm -hmm. But this is not a time to be modest. You really need to know what your risks are. So go to the BMI calculator. You can find one on the Center for Disease Control website or the Virginia Department of Health might have one. I know we have one on our website. But these allow you to put in your height, weight, and it will calculate out your body mass index. A normal body mass index is 24.9 or, or down to about 18, and 40 or more is severe obesity. Could you, uh, doctor, could you stop for a moment and give us the, your website where they can find that information? Sure. The website is www.drhamiltonstubbs.com, and that's dr, the abbreviation dr. HamiltonStuff.com. That's also where you can find a free download of our coronavirus survival guide and a, a document for returning to places of worship. Excellent. Thank you. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just wanted to make certain they had that information. Um, sure. Thank you. You know, with everything that's happening, certainly, again, the, the protests since George Floyd was murdered, do you have concerns also about the stress and mental health in general in the population, and does that make us susceptible in any way to COVID-19? Well, yes, I do have concerns about that. And one of the first conferences that we did for the NAACP and the Virginia Association of Ministers, Wives and Ministers, Widows, where I'm also the health committee chair, was a talk with several psychologists on how to reduce stress. And we'll be re repeating some tips on how to reduce stress. Also, coronavirus anxiety is a term that's been coined, and it is affecting sleep. Sleep deprivation is associated with a decrease in your immune response and increased susceptibility to diseases, especially infections. So, yes, I'm very concerned about mental health, reduction of stress, and our ability to cope and sleep during this particular pandemic. And it's been so long since I've gotten more than six hours sleep, I would consider it a miracle. But I do understand, as I have <laughs> my concerns about that, frankly, uh, because both parents died of Alzheimer's. I know the studies, because I've dealt with a lot of doctors during the 12 years my parents survived, that, that it, it isn't the amount of sleep, it's when the, the amount of sleep changes radically from one time to another. So I guess if I'm consistently six hours, I feel somewhat comforted when it comes to Alzheimer's. But still, for the pandemic we're discussing today, I just wonder, what can people do? They're saying that there's more alcohol and drug addiction and, uh, now because I, I guess, understandably, people are looking for some sort of relief or maybe just looking to drug themselves to sleep. They're self-medicating. That's right, self-medicating to sleep. Doctor, what do you think about that? What what can we tell them? Even before the pandemic, about two-thirds of people who come to see a sleep specialist have already tried to self-medicate. And the most common form of self-medication is to, to have an alcoholic beverage. Mm -hmm. I uh, have uh, mixed emotions about alcohol because the research says that alcohol will cause you to wake up when it wears off. Yes. But through the years, I've learned a way to use the alcohol for, for people who, who insist on having alcohol. So it can actually be sleep-inducing, but it has to be paired with something, some other form of food. And that's where my training in medicinal foods helps me help my patients. 
Tell us something about that. I know we, we have a lot to discuss today, but tell us something, because when I read that about your doing that, the medicinal foods, how they can have both a positive and a negative effect, how can we use them for a positive effect, specifically now with our topic today of the pandemic coronavirus? Let me see if I understand the question. You're asking me how can foods help us to boost our immune system during the corona pandemic? That's a much better question than the one I stumbled through. Let, let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> what foods boost the immune system is what he's asking. Yes. Okay. So there's some things that are coming out in the literature that are very interesting and they might be helpful and they're cost effective for people who may not have access to a physician or may have under insurance or no insurance, and it, it is our nutrition. We all know that we should be eating a healthy diet, but a healthy diet means different things to different people. Mm. What has been found to help boost the immune system is to eat certain fruits and vegetables. Your green leafy vegetables and your fruits that are high in vitamin C. Not only that, um, making sure that you have vitamin D. Vitamin D is important to the immune system and getting some sun will help you. If you look back in history when people were affected by tuberculosis and we didn't know what the cure was, people would go out to hospitals designated just for folks who had tuberculosis and one of the treatments was to get sunbathing, to do sunbathing. Mm. And what we know now is that the sun helps us to produce vitamin D, which helps boost the immune system. It affects the macrophages, and we need our macrophages. They're, they're part of our immune system, immune system that's first activated. So spending some time outside during the time where the sun waves are least dangerous is probably a good advice, especially if you believe the research of a Dr. Holick. He has spent his I think his entire career studying vitamin D and has a good body of research on that. His work is just part of a body of work that supports vitamin D. You also want to stay hydrated so that your body is not stressed. And then I want to go back to sleep. It's an individualized thing. In order to know how much you need, especially for you, Marcelo, you wouldn't need to do what's called free running to see when you are not in a situation where you have to get up at a certain time, how many hours of sleep do you actually need? And then you will know if the six hours is enough for you or if you need more hours of sleep. And why this becomes important is because sleep deprivation is accumulative. So Mm -hmm. if you're losing a little bit at a time, maybe 30 minutes every night, by the end of the week, you have accumulated what's called a large sleep debt. And the amount of sleep you get has to do with the ability of the body to be able to clean debris from cellular metabolism out of the cells. Hmm. So sleep deprivation is important for our, our memory and for rejuvenation of the brain. And sleep deprivation won't be good for people who want to protect the brain. So you have to get your own sleep. And I like to say if you cheat sleep, you will probably come up on the short end of your health. That's true. Well, I have to say I'm reasonably comfortable that I only need six hours because my schedule pretty much is my own, and I wake up almost to the minute, six hours from the time I go to sleep, unless I let the dogs in the room, and then they're the ones who get me up in four and a half hours walking around. But anyway, I want to get back to Eileen for a second. I wanted to ask you, Eileen, about what we've heard so much of the impact on retirement homes with the coronavirus, but not as much regarding medical workers in hospitals, whatever level, you know, as you know, most people think doctors Uh and nurses, but you know, there are a lot more than doctors and nurses that are working the hospitals 24-7 these days. How are they faring during this crisis? Well, there's a crisis in, in healthcare because, you know, People will be, and doctors and nurses are, they're going home, they're sleeping in their garages, the frontline workers. It's an, it's an unparalleled amount of influx of very sick patients. I think that they're, they're I mean, I have, I know, I know nurses who have 
sent their kids to live with relatives. I know I have I have physician friends who are staying in hotels when they're working in frontline care rather than go home. I uh, I know a young doctor who has a friend who has an apartment that that is used infrequently, and when he has a COVID nineteen patient, he goes and sleeps in that apartment. He does not go home. I know people who are which I did for my entirety of my career, way back from, you know, the every infectious disease I ever had treated, I would strip down on the porch and go inside and bathe. You know, just these are just precautions that medical people take. But, you know, this is what you do. So I think we really need to talk about this. And I, and I also think that we are also talking about the idea of what, is, what it means to be an essential worker. And when you're an essential worker, I mean, it's interesting Nurses have always enjoyed a very high social appreciation level, but the salaries have never been commensurate to what they do. Yes. And I hope that coming out of this, a re-examination of the value of nurses, both salary commensurate with their value needs to be ad- addressed. Because I, I really think that, you know, looking at the people who are serving in these, in these roles, I really think we really need to have a pause moment and, and really understand what, you know the, the what is happening in these professions and I'll throw in my own bias and remind everyone that COVID-19 is affecting women employees more than men because nurses and grocery store clerks and teachers all of these frontline jobs are disproportionately female professions yes. and are stacked high with females and many of them women of color so you know we really need to have a conversation of what is the value of any particular job and are people being compensated and are they getting the social respect that they deserve because i believe if we can renegotiate the social respect that we see in real time these frontline workers are earning the social respect has always been implied but never really acknowledged mm-hmm. so I, I i think that out of this we're going to have a, a conversation about valuing people for what they do in every way both socially and you know and acknowledging that you know the yeah but frontline workers are are really really real they're really taking it in the gut yes. they really are and we have to have that conversation later we have to have that conversation yes. I, I i think i think that's what's going to what's going to come out of this is that we're going to have that conversation we're going to have to and doctor with the calls for defunding police budgets uh, if it becomes a, an american reality what would you, as a medical professional, doctor, what would you suggest or uh, how would you suggest the money be moved to help social justice for the underserved communities? But in general, where should that money go to make the quality of life and health in America better? Well, um, I am not an expert in that area, but my first thought is that we do need to have a law and order police force. Maybe the money should go toward building community relationships and identifying people in the community who can be employed to work with law enforcement and help law enforcement have a better relationship with the people that the law enforcement serves. Excellent expert or not excellent answer doctor i wonder if we must go could you could you tell us now before we go tell us what it is you want most for us to take from this conversation i want to tell the uh, people who are interested in going back to church the second part and that the churches people who are at churches that want to reopen should monitor the Virginia Department of Health website, or if you're not in Virginia, your state website, and look at the number of COVID cases over the past seven days. If the number of cases are going down, then it might be appropriate to consider opening up your church with some modifications. If the number of cases are going up, then you might want to postpone opening up your place of worship. And if you are thinking of opening up the church, I suggest forming a team because it's a lot of work to stay up to date with the changes that are happening because of the discoveries being made by scientists and healthcare professionals. The work should be divided into three parts. Once you have your team, you should have a team looking at the procedures prior to opening the church. 
it is stressful. Change is always stressful. How are you going to tell members of your church about these changes and what to expect when they come back into this environment? You will need to do some special cleaning. Uh, the building has been closed. You need to make sure your water fountains don't have mold. Your air conditioner isn't infected with other viruses or organisms that can cause illness like Legionnaire's disease. Then you need a team to look at what to do during worship. Do people need to call in and make reservations so appropriate spacing can be offered at the church and signs should be made? People should be reminded to practice good hand hygiene. We will have hand sanitizing stations. And in some way to give your offering other than passing around a collection plate. And then you need a team that will look at what to do after worship service because things like the bathroom where the virus has been documented to live up to nine days will need some special cleaning if you're going to have service within, again, within that nine days or if you have a building that's used multiple times during the day. There are some legal implications that churches and places of worship need to be aware of. Even though a place of worship may be exempt from some laws or uh, suits, it's not completely exempt. Plain negligence could get a place of worship sued. You can be sued for anything, but you may lose if you don't follow the CDC's guidelines. And you need to have some documentation that you're following the guidelines. And if you have insurance, check with your carrier for guidelines and make sure you're doing what your carrier recommends. So people say, well, it will, will someone sue the church? And my, my husband is not only a, a minister, my husband is a lawyer who used to specialize in church law. Mm. And the answer is, yes, people will sue the church. And the proof is not only my own experience, it's in the Bible, Malachi 3 and 8. Will a man rob God? The answer is yes, and you can read more for yourself. All right, what a way to go out. You know, I think at the very least, the two points I'm hearing in your last statement, Doctor, and that is, number one, not only the institutions like churches, but individuals need to take responsibility. And one of those responsibilities is to, you know, the come to Jesus, if you will, reality that reopening our society is just as complicated and complex and new to us as dealing with this pandemic. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's oh. true. Okay. And it reminds me of an article that my husband wrote, Where True Worshippers Gather. We must realize that God is everywhere, or your being that you are worshiping to is everywhere, not confined to the walls of a building. So mm. remember to worship in, in spirit and in truth and to take other people into consideration, not just what is convenient, comfortable for you, but what is good for other people, because that's why we're coming to places of worship, to learn how to serve others. Beautiful. All right, ladies. You know, I'm sure Eileen would agree, women have always been given the short change longer than most of the rest of us that are now fighting for social justice, etc. And I would like to say we've had two powerful women, as I said at the beginning of our show, as our guests today, Dr. Pamela Hamilton Stubbs, BSNMD, Health Committee Chair, Virginia State Conference of the NAACP, and our returning guest, a nurse who is a member of that Virginia State Conference of the NAACP, Nurse Eileen Davis. It has been an incredible conversation, and I, I hope everyone will get the message. Thank you so very much, ladies, for being on the show today, and we wish both of you all the very best, okay? Thank you. Thank you, Marshall. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Wear a mask, people. Wear a mask. Bye now. And now, enjoy Watchfire Music, featuring vocal artist Julia Wade singing Beautiful from her new CD, Sunday Morning. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord 
Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us and becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. On 25 May 2020, a 46-year-old African-American citizen died in Minneapolis, Minnesota, after a 44-year-old white police officer, Derek Chauvin, in full view of three other officers and bystanders with cells in video mode, knelt on his neck for almost nine minutes, while he was handcuffed face down in the street. The name of the perk was George Floyd. Like Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Tamia Rice, Sandra Bland, Manuel Ellis, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd's guilt was never in question, never considered up for discussion, indeed making no difference, never given a thought. He was just another racial expletive. Maybe it was our revolutionary bicentennial that really ran aground in Nantucket Island, and possibly Reagan's welfare queen was the reef into which trickle-down collided in Prince William Sound. Or did the last remnants of American exceptionalism die with our forgotten eleven in a Gulf of Mexico explosion? For more than 244 years have we, the majority, been blind to the unprospected black gold in America? Didn't we know one day the killing of a black person by an officer of the law would finally move America's moral needle from tip of the iceberg to final straw? So then you ask, why isn't the murder of George Floyd less forgettable, or any more important a call to action than any other drug deal gone bad, neighborhood gang war drive-by, or Jim Crow residue? First, America in Crisis like a historic presidential entourage neighborhood stroll to blaspheme both church and state, is a teaser, meant to shape our POV, while the real black gold is redefined by paler minds, unable to see the colorful diverse forest for the out-of-control carte blanche trees. America's crisis is actually a long-overdue transition, more unsettling for conservative Republican money financing corporate-owned media because of its demonstrative transparency in an election year, when all we have to lose is a president who's become as bored with our lack of pandemic preparedness as he is with his DPB. Above and beyond the looting violence, property damage, brick-throwing at officers who, every day and night, do what most of us only watch on TV, there is a post-D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation ask, rolling through the ashes of Dirty Harry's empty chair, inflaming driving Miss Daisy into seeking the lessons of the help emerging, enabling us to knock at the door of mature thinking, where true patriotism lives by the example of Bishop Marianne Egribuddy and D.C. Mayor's Muriel Bowser. This global freedom of expression of mostly marching, dancing, singing, and kneeling in peaceful assembly clearly demonstrates a timely desire for justice and equality, balanced atop the infrastructure of the 2017 Women's March and 2018 students still insisting, never again. This real-time televised murder of a human being has ignited a complacent world into a collective Moses on yellow-lettered pavement, crying out from the wilderness surrounding closed White House mines, shrouded in hate, bigotry, and a self-imagined American pharaoh. Let my people go. 
Nonetheless, like Caesars, Emperors, Dulles, and Koch brothers before our 45th, the journey of a thousand miles can easily begin with one photo up too far, and a murderous pill too impossibly bitter to swallow. Indeed, there was an America before Pearl Harbor and D-Day, and, except for racism, a vastly different America after 22 November 1963. And what we accepted as normal before 9-11 morphed us into forever oil war accomplices. Realizing there are still conservative Republicans who support Donald Trump despite his lack of response to COVID-19, disregard for our Constitution, and desire to dominate American civilians in the battle space, with active duty military might, any pretense that the America of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, Bill Barr, Mike Pence is a land of the free is simply fake news. And another thing. America has always been much more than a red, white, and blue stars and stripes symbol. It is the rainbow of nations, a multicultural people from immigration and slavery to a quarterback's awakening, and NFL social justice for all patriotic enough to take a knee. Despite the stark public brutality of George Floyd's death, America's new reality is not a crisis but a conscientious moment of moral choices. While blind to the enterprise, faith, and contributions of our human black gold, and failing to live the words we've writ large, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Exceptional greatness will elude us. Now facing the ugly American Trump within us that we projected onto the world, let's vote a joyful noise that shatters the silence of indifference to hate, bigotry, and justice for all. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.